Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We see crime as, as something of a, of a hybrid between the physical and digital worlds. Even if you think of a very traditional form of, of offending, um, there will be digital evidence associated uh, with that offence, uh, almost certainly. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm David Andrews. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today I'm joined by Dr. Simon Walsh, Chief Scientist Forensics at the Australian Federal Police. In this capacity, he leads a critical operational support portfolio comprising the suite of AFP's forensic science and technical intelligence capabilities. Welcome, Simon. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Simon, perhaps as, as we start, um, I think it's often good to give people a bit of contextual background and explanatory detail, especially for uh, what perhaps is a, um, a, a technical and detailed and um, little abstract to the public, the, the notion of, of science and forensics sometimes. So perhaps if you could... Uh, just start with a bit of an explanation of what your role actually entails as the Chief Scientist Forensics. Yeah, thanks, David. Yeah, so as the Chief Scientist, I lead the AFP's Forensic Command. That's a command of around about 400 people um, dispersed um, from our headquarters and main lab here in Canberra, but through our regional headquarters that are based in most of the capital cities of Australia. And also we have a few people working as part of our international network with our foreign partners in the region and elsewhere overseas. And forensic science and the forensic capabilities within an environment like ours in the AFP are part of a group of, of capabilities that we sort of think of as close operational support areas. So they work in support of all of our operational work, whether that's our community policing here in the ACT or our national and international investigations that we do with partner organisations domestically or, or overseas. Um, the forensic capabilities provide a support to those investigations um, and they support all of the outcomes that the investigations are ultimately targeting, whether that's a, an arrest or a prosecution in a, in a traditional law enforcement sense or increasingly um, trying to disrupt and prevent crimes or, or security incidents from occurring in the first place and contributing more into the, I guess, the intelligence uh, domain and the outcomes uh, that that sort of support can provide. And as a bit of a follow-up, I suppose, uh, what, to, to look at the title in its whole, Chief Scientist Forensics. So uh, is science for, synonymous with forensics or what, what's the distinction there? Yeah, well, I guess forensics is a, is a, is a discipline or an applied area of science. So um, science is, of course, a very broad church and um, and forensics in a traditional sense was referred to as science pertaining to the law. So it was thought of as when you would apply any science and technology methodologies or, or, uh, or tools uh, to a problem that had a, a legal and or security context. So that's really the, the way in which we think of our field. Um, so forensic science is, is itself pretty broad. It can involve a large number of, of specialised scientific areas from chemistry to biology to, um, to digital forensics and many others. Uh, and it also increasingly involves, you know, use of modern technologies and capabilities that are applied elsewhere throughout, um, you know, throughout the fields of science and technology. Yeah. 
I know that there are lots of uh, federal government departments or institutions that have a scientific aspect. So whether mm. it's DST group of defense or, or sort of purely scientific bodies, but um, in in that sense, uh, is part of your work uh, sort of general scientific research as well as then the investigative forensic side of things as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point because I guess um, in order to support investigations or operational activity you know, with good quality um, science or technical intelligence, you absolutely need to try and remain at the forefront of your field uh, in those relevant areas. So so a lot of what our, our experts do and, you know, and we do across commands like ours is, um, is, is really a process of continuous improvement, making sure that we're engaged um, directly or, you know, in support of um, research and innovation activities so that we can um, make the best use of, of, of modern and contemporary techniques and technologies. Uh, and we do that a lot in partnership with organisations such as those that you've mentioned. So, you know, in, in across the Commonwealth space, um, organisations like the Defence Science and Technology Group, um, you know, our partners in the national intelligence community, um, our partners obviously in, in the law enforcement community across uh, state and territory uh, jurisdictions, uh, and increasingly, um, we work you know, very, very extensively with our partners in academia and and partners in industry as well. If you'll excuse the slight uh, sort of perhaps commercial toner of this question, I think there's there's a certain stereotype perhaps in the public's mind around what uh, what sort of forensics looks like. It's mm. you know, quirky people in labs, or it's people in sort of plastic onesies and face masks dusting for from dusting for fingerprints. Uh, so perhaps um, could you maybe look at piercing some of those misconceptions and giving us a better sense of what the scope of forensic and scientific work is in modern policing? Yeah, no, it's certainly um, it's a it's a career stream, I guess, where there is a, a pretty good public profile, I have to say, um, thanks to shows like CSI and, and many others. There seems to be a pretty common place where uh, you'll see a forensic scientist appearing, um, you know, in detective shows or, or, or other popular uh, popular culture. I guess the main distinction um, in terms of myth busting, some of that is uh, often they're uh, they're wearing high heels and carrying a gun and 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 involving themselves in car chases and manhandling suspects and so on, doing the whole the whole gamut. And that's not really part of our our role description. In fact, the the main difference is is that we are really a Kind of potpourri of uh, of deep specialisation and technical expertise. So we have a range of of um, of, of specialised um, paths, career paths within a command like ours, uh, and it's really how you bring those specialist, um, you know, uh, ex- how they you bring you bring that specialist expertise together. So it's a bit more of a team of teams sort of model rather than. Um, you know, a, a, an individual uh, with a whole range of, of skills and techniques um, uh, at their individual disposal. So that's the main difference, I think, um, is that we um, we work very much in a collaborative mode. Um, the type of work we're involved in means that the the problems we face, you know, are, are pretty different from from one matter to the next. Uh, the tools and technologies we apply, obviously, are consistent and have to be highly validated and. And stringently calibrated so that we can rely, um, you know, exclusively on the results that we produce. But, um, but really, the context in which we apply them changes all the time. So, working collaboratively in that endeavour is really a key part of what we do. Uh, and many people are involved to get the sorts of outcomes that are needed to support any investigation. Well, I've, I've just got a list here in front of me uh, of of some of the scope of work that's covered by uh, by the forensics area, and and just to give people out there um, a, a bit of a a, a top level view. I mean, some, it's including things like you know, digital, uh, biological, chemical, document science, um, the the more classic crimes in investigation, as well as biometrics, uh, ballistics identification, audiovisual, victim identification, imagery. Uh, as well as things like chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear um, sort of detection and, and scientific work there too. So it's really a very you know, massively expansive uh, array of, of skill sets that people must have to work in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do have, as I said, a lot of a lot of broad range of, of specialist knowledge and expertise. 
uh, broad range of, of, of technologies and methodologies that are sort of composed within that as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, that specialist knowledge um, has been developed over many years by the people themselves really committing to trying to be the best um, expert that they can in their chosen chosen fields. Um, and, yeah, in any, any one matter it can be how those different uh, different skills, um, different uh, um, different technologies can come together and, and, and add value and impact the problem. And as we've seen, you know, as the as the world changes and society changes, and different problems and, and different priorities change with it, so um, our operating environment never really stays the same. So the way in which those different skills can can come together, and in fact, the way in which we then identify and and grow new new skills and capabilities is is really um, a feature of, of of our workplace as well, um, as you'd find in other other specialist areas and other other fields of science and and technology. Within that list, or indeed, I suppose beyond it as well. But are, are there certain capabilities or roles that are unique to the AFP in Australia, um, or perhaps to put it a different way, uh, how does the AFP scientific and forensic capability support or complement that of the states. I mean, that, that's obviously a the the state federal divide is a difficult one in Australian public policy, and I'm sure particularly when it comes to things like policing and exchanging of information and jurisdictions and such. So, how do those parts complement uh, in your work? Yeah, again, it's a it's a great question, and um, and often you know we find that you know an organisation like the AFP. Obviously, people know it's a policing organisation. Probably recognise the uniforms, but but don't really um, distinguish it, or don't know a great deal about um, what might make it different from from other um, police organisations, and particularly those that people see more in the community in their cities and towns, which are predominantly state or territory police officers. I guess first and foremost, um, one of the key differences is the Commonwealth has its own Crimes Act and Criminal Code, um, so we're responsible um, as the as the Commonwealth Police to um, to administer uh, and and oversight and enforce that criminal law at the Commonwealth level. So there's some differences in terms of um, uh, certain crime types that are emphasised or, or, or specifically um, you know, prominent within. Commonwealth criminal law as opposed to state criminal law and the way in which um, those uh, those laws are enforced and, and oversighted um, in, in, in our federation uh, can also be different. So obviously a, a well-known perhaps example would be our work in counter-terrorism uh, where uh, the federal police does have a uh, and the Commonwealth does have a coordinating uh, role in, in that crime type. And so there's a common way in which the AFP operates uh, in partnership with the various state and territory police uh, in each of the state and territory jurisdictions. Uh, and so from a forensic perspective, um, our role then needs to be really uh, focused on on delivering on that type of mandate. So in answer to your question, um, some of the key differences about our work as opposed to our state and territory counterparts is... In a state and territory environment, there's usually um, far greater volumes uh, of community crimes, um, breaking inners, uh, assaults against the person, um, other types of uh, of crime that people encounter in large cities and towns. Um, in the Commonwealth space, the focus is often not so much on volume, but more so on complexity. So, crime types such as cyber crime. Um, online child exploitation, counter-terrorism, you know, national sec- other national security matters uh, are more in the domain of a, of a Commonwealth and international policing responsibility. Uh, so our capabilities need to be able to support those sorts of investigations more as a matter of routine um, than a matter of exception as they might be in a state and territory environment. So I guess in terms of capability, that often means that we we need to grow and 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 deploy capabilities in a manner that's um, more suited to Commonwealth crime and, and federal uh, crimes, um, and uh, and in in that context, it can be a 
complementary set of capabilities that state and territory police can uh, can uh, take advantage of in certain circumstances. So a lot of our joint work in areas like organised crime or counterterrorism, uh, we can bring certain capabilities to bear uh, to support that work in partnership with our state and territory partners. I think that complexity versus volume point you made, I think, is a real useful way of perhaps condensing that distinction is that it's certainly not a matter of being uh, better or worse, but just a, a, a different focus or, or different emphasis. emphasis. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, you, you did mention some of the, some of those examples you gave just then, I think, is, is where we're sort of now going to slightly pivot the conversation and look mm. at uh, some of these new and emerging types of, uh, of, of crime that are becoming more prevalent. Um, and for so, for example, uh, we had a conversation on the podcast earlier this year with a couple of researchers, um, Darren Linville and uh, Will Grant, who specialise in social media forensics. Mm. So if, if any listeners are interested in hearing about that in a bit more detail, then, then feel free to consult our archive. But um, yeah, their focus on social media forensics and in online disinformation. So I'm not sure if that's an area that the AFP is active in uh, in, in responding to, but it seems to me that the evolution of digital forensics is quite a um, sort of fascinating pivot from perhaps those those traditional, really tangible forms of forensic science. So uh, how has that growth of digital information and, and crime that either takes place online or is facilitated by electronic means, how has that changed the work of the AFP and, and forensics as mm. well? Yeah, it's completely transformed. It is, I guess, a, a short way to, to describe it, the um, – the area of digital forensics and the capabilities that that support the investigation of um, cyber crime or technology enabled crime uh, is by far and has been for some time the fastest growing and is now really the largest contribution um, that our command makes across uh, across our operating environment and across the capabilities that that our forensic command brings to bear. So. So, so I guess very much so now. Um, we see crime as 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 uh, as something of a of a hybrid <laughs> between the physical and digital worlds. Even if you think of a very traditional form of of offending, um, such as a a crime against a person, maybe a a, a physical and or or, or sexually um, motivated offence. Um, there will be digital evidence associated uh, with that offence, uh, almost certainly. Um, there's a um, there's a way in which the the physical and the digital worlds come together um, in a more sophisticated sense. Often, in the context of cybercrime, we're talking about um, offshore actors, um, highly sophisticated technologies, you know, delivering often uh, harmful effects at scale. Um, so. If, Defrauding large numbers of individuals, for example, you know, from a distance, enabled by you know the the internet and encryption and other technological um, features of our of our world, um, and that can then be much, you know, very complex um, complex crime types for us to investigate and pursue. So, um, but again, the victims of those crimes are real people, and their losses is. is uh, uh, is the same uh, as if they'd been, you know, robbed in a more traditional sense in that context. But um, but the crimes itself um, are very much more in this sort of concept of hybrid crime where um, everything has a mix of the physical and the digital. So this is possibly showing a bit of my professional background as someone that uh, both worked in defence and sort of studies that professionally. But in in that space, we talk about the uh, the nature of war remaining constant, mm. but the character of war changing. I was wondering if that's a a useful analogy for this space here, whether there's sort of the, I guess, the nature of policing in forensics remaining constant, but the um, possibly a new character in which that is applied. Would that mm. be a fair characterization? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great framing, and I'll probably take a bit of homework away from this discussion to look into some of those uh, you know those themes. As they apply in, you know, in in the defence context, uh, because certainly, you know, it resonates with me because, um, you know, I guess policing is a, you know, is a is a um, is an old discipline. You know, it's a traditional discipline in in the form of you know society as we know it now. Um, 
the model of policing has has remained constant, and in our democracies, that's a a model where we police by consent of the public. Um, the, the the you know the famous sort of doctrine came from the UK, is known as the Peelian principles, where the the police are the public and the public are the police, and um, and in, in under that model of policing by consent, um, you know our legitimacy to do the work that we do and and execute the powers and authorities that police have um, is derived from the trust of the community. So um, that aspect is really universal and and has been a, a traditional and enduring aspect of you know of really how we understand and apply policing effectively in our communities. But obviously, you know, at the moment, um, you know, and, and, and over time, you know, communities change, change, um, you know, attitudes change. And, and, and we noticed that a lot through the period uh, recently with the COVID pandemic, you know, the role of police was, was really different in, in that period than, than what it had otherwise been, um, requiring the police to enforce, you know, public health orders and, and engage with the community in quite a different way, uh, on quite different grounds uh, than uh, than was had previously been the case, um, you know. And we've seen um, some consequences for that, where the you know, along with other other institutions, um, you know, some of the trust and confidence as it's measured, you know, from the community uh, in the police, uh, you know, has taken a dip over those recent years. So, and obviously we've seen also, you know how you know things like social media can can allow for much greater diversity of, of views and attitudes to I guess take hold and take hold in different ways across our community than what we might have experienced before so again um, you know adhering to those uh, those principles and and I guess achieving those broad levels of, of trust and confidence across that more diverse you know uh, community environment is, is uh, is challenging, and so I think that you know some of the uh, put that together with as we've described some of the changes in the operating environment, some of the changes in therefore the criminal environment, um, and it and it does become a much more dynamic and much more complex environment, and and therefore us as you know to use your words the character of of what we do and and how we do it um, is certainly evolving and and will need to continually evolve evolve sorry. We'll be right back. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. I might just note for um, uh, for anyone listening that this next section will probably be dealing with some relatively uh, uh, you know, bleak and um, difficult topics. So it's, it's that of... The way in which uh, electronic media and digital media uh, is in, in, intersects with child abuse and, uh, and exploitation, because so I think that's an area that you touched on earlier. And, and, I, and at least as a non-expert, I feel like whenever you see articles in the newspaper about people who have been arrested for uh, for being sort of involved in in child abuse, so that it's usually a phone's been found that has all this information on it, or someone's on a a chat room and and sort of that's often a bit of a vector for them being um, arrested or charged. So it seems like that's almost the the default, perhaps, way in which that material is disseminated and uh, and produced. So 
perhaps could you elaborate a little on on how the the child abuse industry, I suppose it is, um, mm. sort of fits within this digital media space. Yeah, I guess it's one of the you know the it's it, it is a difficult area for I think for people to you know to to comprehend and understand. It's quite an abhorrent and horrendous area of offending. I think we all agree, uh, and clearly um, one in which, unfortunately, um, technologies that otherwise enable and empower our industries and economies um, uh, can be used, um, you know, to uh, uh, to cause, you know, great harm and, and, you know, and disseminate this form of offending um, much more widely and to a scale that's now, you know, really disturbingly high across our communities. And, you know, I mean, in terms of how, you know, that environment's changed, um, you know, it has progressed, sadly, um, um, to levels where offending, um, you know, can be directed um, over a secure internet environment um, via the dark web or other forms of peer-to-peer encrypted uh, communications. Um, by that I mean, you know, a pedophile could direct the abuse of a child somewhere in a vulnerable part of the world and and then consume, you know, the the viewing of that abuse um, for their own pleasure. Uh, and that's that's the sort of thing where um, you know again from a from a policing perspective, um, you know these are areas that motivate us um, you know to to extremely high levels, um, but we do face you know these challenges of um, of of you know transnational um, syndicates um, of uh, of trying to work um, with with countries and communities where you know, some of the most vulnerable individuals and, and groups uh, in the world um, are uh, are being exploited uh, often by, you know, ringleaders and offenders that, that live amongst us in, in wealthier uh, Western countries. Um, and from a frenzy perspective, of course, um, the work that we need to do in these areas is itself really difficult work um, because um, to support our part of the investigative and prosecution process, um, involves the identification and categorization uh, of the abuse material itself. Um, and that nowadays is you know large, large volumes of, of, of digital media, um, all of which is you know is horrendous in nature. Uh, and I guess one of the things going back to the discussion around you know the changing environment and changing criminal environment that the challenges you know us and challenges me in thinking about this, sort of area is that if you think about it, um, you know, conceptually, uh, we're dealing with an area where, you know, the volumes of data are massive, um, the ways in which that data is transmitted and, uh, and, and shared, you know, itself is, you know, global and, and, and really broad and diverse in, in nature. It's enabled, as we've said, by, by technologies of encryption and, and the like. Um, but then when we get down to it, um, to, to investigate and prosecute those matters, we'll then be facing um, a criminal justice environment where, you know, a single person um, is taken before the courts to be prosecuted against, you know, maybe a particular offence or a range of offences, each in which might have a series of proofs that need to be established. Uh, and that work can be very laborious um, and detailed uh, to get to the appropriate standard that allows for, you know, those um, judicial environments to to uh, consider and uh, and decide upon, you know, the the matters at hand, and I'm not saying that to complain about it, but just to hopefully present that contrast. That on one end of the scale, you've got, you know, huge volumes of data, highly sophisticated technologies, globalised syndicates, and uh, you know, in transnational offending, um, but at the end of it, we still have to try and support and 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 achieve uh, a level of, um, of of detail and and precision um, that will be required for for each individual matter. And um, you know, though trying to um, trying to get harmony across that operating environment through to that endpoint is 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 really challenging, and it certainly challenges. Not just us from a from a policing and forensic perspective, uh, but it challenges our legal system in terms of their ability 
uh, to keep up and work effectively, you know, against these sorts of challenges as well. Um, you know, and it's the sort of area where, from a policy perspective, I think um, all parties involved will need to, again, um, pay continual attention to it to try and um, do what we can all do collectively to, um, you know, to minimise and reduce and um, eliminate this type of offending and this type of abuse. Well, I think that actually takes us quite neatly to a, a question I wanted to ask, which was around the extent to which the law is keeping up with or is indeed capable of keeping up with the speed of both technological and criminal evolution. Because I think if we think of, say, cybersecurity, that almost seems to be um, not a losing battle, but a, a you know a deep challenge across mm. all levels of society in government and private sector for how to keep ahead of what uh, sort of cyber criminals and organisations are doing to keep those systems secure. Uh, but in the same way, I mean, criminals aren't restricted by the bounds of the law. They are inevitably going to work um, as as far outside them as they can to achieve their outcomes. How do you manage that challenge? I mean, are there areas that require particular reform? Are, are the the laws actually suited to this digital age? That seems like a a perennial challenge up and down the line of policy and government. Yeah, it, it certainly is, and um, in in. And I, I, I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, progress made in, in, in these areas. I think that um, certainly, you know, here in Australia and, and working with, you know, with our, um, you know, with our partners um, across the departments in the Commonwealth and, and through into the, you know, the legislature itself, um, you know, there's been some some real acknowledgement of, of the role, particularly that, that technologies and and Digital capabilities uh, are playing and have played for some time. So, obviously, in the counterterrorism and national security space, um, you know there was a range of reforms made with respect to um, telecommunications legislation, um, which allowed the uh, allowed for, I guess, greater um, opportunity for us uh, in, in in our context to um, to get support from industry around. Um, Access to information um, and access to uh, to uh, to devices and to computers through warrants, obviously, as is always and appropriately the case, but um, but in a way in which, um, for example, telecommunication providers could assist us in uh, in 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 accessing information uh, in a manner that would be. Um, um, better aligned to the the way in which technology was being used, particularly in the national security context, um, that's been evolved further recently with respect to amendments uh, in areas such as the surveillance legislation amendment, identi- identify and disrupt legislation, which was pretty recently enacted in the last couple of years, uh, and that was really to help um, provide opportunity for another range of warrants that. That took account of the fact that um, you know we are talking about you know network infrastructure and and and, and global um, you know telecommunications um, and the and the requirement um, and benefit um, that would be um, be there for law enforcement and national security agencies to to work more effectively at that um, at that broader and higher level um, and then more recently um, there's been changes that. Um, that enable, uh, particularly um, arising out of some of our, our five country arrangements and the international production orders scheme, um, but that was designed to assist and, and streamline the process by which, for example, um, telecommunications uh, or data um, that people might have been generating um, or sharing here um, could be held on um, uh, in storage farms um, um, or data warehouses um, offshore, often um, in our case, typically in the US. So, um, so the way in which uh, that information can be recovered and shared um, has been now uh, the subject of further law reform, and they're all really essential um, areas of progress. But you know, there's there's many others where um, where we still need to keep working. To be honest, uh, well, some of the things that spring to mind are. In, in areas like biometrics and, and identification sciences for, 
you know, I was involved in that area deeply when earlier in my career and particularly around the period where we were developing legislation for things like national DNA databases. Uh, and that, you know, that period, and I'm not sure if you remember it, um, but it was certainly a period of real, um, real growth and expansion in terms of how forensic science could contribute to, to investigations, particularly high volume crimes such as residential and commercial burglary and stolen motor vehicles and the like. Um, but the legislation and the policy discussion around that time was also quite controversial because it was to do with, you know, governments holding large um, quantities of genetic information from their citizens. Um, so a lot of um, discussion around, um, you know, rights and protection and privacy of that information. Um, but that, that, that process occurred in the late 90s, early 2000s. And largely speaking, um, hasn't really been revisited um, from a legislative perspective, um, other than some periodic review in the first, you know, say five years or so of of those models being in place. So um, there's a range of ways in which we now have either opportunity or need to use modern uh, genetic and DNA profiling technologies, uh, and that's another area where I'd certainly say there'd be benefit in in refreshing the public policy discussion and looking at whether or not our, our legislation uh, is match fit in those areas uh, for the, uh, the types of techniques and technologies that are available to us. And a great example of that is uh, the use of genealogy databases, which has been quite prominent um, already in an investigative sense internationally and domestically. Um, great outcomes in resolving... Uh, some historic and cold case matters, um, but it is also accessing publicly available um, DNA and other genealogy information. Uh, and we haven't had a public policy discussion really about how best we could use those sorts of technologies or capabilities from a law enforcement or national security perspective. Well, it's certainly one of those areas that feels like uh, you know we can see the the benefits from a policing or sort of national security standpoint, um, as well as some of the the obvious challenges and sort of you know, liberalism and freedom aspects around people's um, uh, ability to <laughs> maybe not have that information on a database somewhere or how that might be misused in context. But I think that doesn't mean that there's not room for a conversation. But it just points, I think, to the complexity of that mm. field and the the need then for a conversation in how to to play that out. Um, and, and maybe sort of the irreverent example that um, jumped to mind while you're speaking is things like Ancestry.com that mm. people are actually voluntarily giving up a lot of their information to private companies uh, to do goodness knows what with. Mm. And um, I think the number of people that actually read terms and conditions on any website is probably vanishingly small. And I'd be surprised if that was much different on some of these websites. But um, it's something that we should maybe be cautious of before we start giving that away and and – whether that then feeds into a wider public conversation, as you say, mm. uh, perhaps there's a precedent there to think of. Yeah, I mean that's right. And these areas, you know, we've, um, you know, we're, we're exploring new technologies in, in in respect of things like DNA profiling, and and you know, we we put media releases out if we you know do some research that we think is is going to be relevant, or introduce some capability that we think is relevant because. We want to try and ensure that the public um, is aware of the sorts of technologies and capabilities um, that we're interested in or that we're applying in these areas because we know there there is a high level of public interest and there is that balance that will need to be struck around the, the context in which those technologies are best applied so that um, everyone's reassured that they're there to be used in circumstances, you know, where they're needed um, to investigate and and resolve, um, you know, complex matters of a crime or security uh, dimension, um, but also that people understand, you know, um, the ways in which that that is to happen and the legal frameworks under which that happens. And yeah, it is hard for all of those frameworks to keep up with uh, with the pace of technological change and. Um, you know, and that's the reality. Um, it's been in a place in place for a while, and it's certainly um, certainly occurring now. In fact, probably exacerbated in a lot of areas just by that that pacing problem and the pace of change. So, 
one area that I think uh, is worth sort of teasing out a little bit is the extent to which the work in the forensic space is uh, preventative or proactive rather than responsive. And I think, again, if we're thinking of broad stereotypes, it's people coming to the scene of a crime and working out, all right, well, how's this occurred, who's responsible, and sort of working backwards. But um, what had struck me were some examples where there've been a bit more um, proactive work in policing, particularly around uh, targeting encrypted platforms used by criminal networks, whether that's um, the uh, Anom uh, situation of 2021, which was between the FBI and Australian uh, authorities, or uh, EnroChat back in 2020, which was between the French and Dutch and more European-focused context. But, um, you know, is is there a an emphasis increasingly on that sort of proactive work, or is that just part and parcel of the the pace of policing work? No, it's an it's an excellent point, and it's um, absolutely there's a there's a huge emphasis on on working that way, and a and a huge need uh, to do so. I guess you know as you've said, um, you know traditionally um, forensic science was was very much, in fact, our you know doctrine used to refer to things like after the fact. It was very much a um, a response model, so a crime had occurred, um, someone had been harmed or murdered or worse, um, and it was our role to then um, try and recreate uh, that the events that surrounded that particular incident uh, and provide you know support to the subsequent investigation and or prosecution, um, and that's still very much a core part of our value proposition. That's really um, always going to be the case. Um, but obviously, um, in areas you know, such as national security, when you're talking about offence types like terrorism, uh, we don't want those events to happen and then be asked to come and uh, pick up the pieces. Um, we want to stop them from happening entirely. So the emphasis operationally has increasingly had to become more focused on disruption, so disrupting the way in which criminal syndicates or other actors um, go about their offending, particularly if they're organised actors in the organised crime space or, again, the terrorism space where, um, you, know, the, you know, they're complex networks of criminal activity and, and disruption strategies are designed to um, frustrate the ability of those networks to operate effectively and thereby reduce their effectiveness and reduce therefore their harm and impact on our communities um, or the ideal you know situation is is a prevention outcome where um, we can harden our environment to such a degree that um, that that offending is 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 uh, is rendered uh, ineffective essentially uh, and doesn't doesn't occur and and from a forensic perspective we've absolutely been on that journey um, we um, we, we, we embraced that that opportunity and necessarily so because it was such a priority of our you know, operational arm of the AFP and our other partners. Uh, and if we weren't actually embracing that, um, then we weren't really relevant to those outcomes that were being pursued in terms of disruption and prevention. So some some classic ways in which you know that occurs is that we, we now – um, practice a, a, a distinct area of, of intelligence um, of criminal intelligence we refer to as forensic intelligence so so information that we derive through the sorts of capabilities that we have can be really valuable in terms of contributing to to the intelligence domain so it might be that patterns of offending can be elaborated by forensic traces um, which um, you know if you weren't approaching um, the, the the aggregation and, and, and analysis of the traces that we collect in the various areas we support investigations then then you might miss that that that, that opportunity to derive that sort of intelligence outcome um, it can also be that our knowledge of, of tactics um, and techniques applied in say for example in the in the national security space um, by doing the forensic work we do we can also help to um, to inform the preventative security layer, for example, with respect to transport security or, or chemicals of security concern and those sorts of policy um, and regulatory um, actions that can can be um, can be implemented to to harden the environment and and, and effectively 
reduce risk and prevent offending. Um, and then in the example you mentioned with respect to encrypted communications, I mean, we've talked about it a couple of times already through this discussion, but it's such an enabler of, of offending um, that if people feel that they can communicate uh, securely, um, then, um, you know, then it, it facilitates their business model quite significantly. Um, and the example which we referred to as Operation Ironside, you know, was one of the most satisfying operational activities, I think, for many of us to be associated with where, um, uh, where essentially um, we were able to uh, control um, and, and, and view um, the, uh, the, the messaging and content uh, that, was, that was coming across an encrypted communication platform um, and, uh, and through that um, really uh, establish um, and then uh, substantially disrupt uh, the ways in which you know a large number of of criminals and networks um, were involved in a whole range of offending um, domestically here it was huge volumes of drug trafficking firearms trafficking you know actual um, you know attempts at at murder or other physical harm um, being disrupted and you know, I, you know many hundred uh, individuals uh, ultimately being uh, being arrested and 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 facing uh, facing you know hundreds or thousands of various offences uh, with respect to that. So you know that's an example of us getting smarter, us thinking about the business model and the way in which criminal groups go about their offending, um, and using our tech, our skills in 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 technical and other areas um, to um, to effectively disrupt that. Well, perhaps. Uh Turning to you personally, Simon, and, and your uh, your career and your history in the in the AFP. Um, so I know that the AFP plays a large role in supporting international engagement uh, and overseas contingencies and such as well. Um, and that you've personally worked on a number of different disaster victim identification operations. Um, some you know, very prominent examples, including the Christchurch earthquake in 2011, MH17 in in 2014, and we're shortly coming up on the 21st anniversary of the Bali bombings as well. So perhaps just as we we close our conversation here, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about your experience on these operations and um, perhaps in that sense how the AFP's forensics capability contributes to Australia's international presence and reputation, uh, whether that's through creating a more secure region or through you know, diplomacy and training up other police forces. Yeah, no, of course it's... Um I think if starting at, a, I guess, a higher level, um, you know, and even going back to where we started the conversation, you know, we, 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 we were talking about a, an area of science or specialisation. Um, you know, each of us have worked to develop our skills and knowledge um, in these areas um, of interest and passion, um, but ultimately to apply them then into a set of circumstances where we think there's there's real value um, and I suppose for me personally, um, those circumstances such as the ones you've mentioned where, um, you know, a profound uh, incident has occurred and, uh, and, and, and affected, um, you know, um, very significantly, um, you know, large numbers of individuals, you know, um, and, and, and our community more broadly you know, I suppose from 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 my personal perspective, um, if there's something I can do to assist with the way in which the individuals involved, the communities um, directly or indirectly involved, um, can start to respond, you know, to that what's often quite a cataclysmic and you know and and unprecedented set of circumstances, um, and start to um, bring a little bit of um, I answer some questions. Um, you know, bring some um, some some um, bring some closure. I guess, as as, as sometimes said, um, you know, to the matters at hand. Um, then that's you know absolutely where you know from my perspective, I always wanted to be, and others would say the same, um, no doubt. Um, from a practical perspective, in terms of um, you know. Um, you know what that's like. I guess um, 
you know, these are these are large scale, um, multi agency, multinational sort of environments. So, um, one of the things that's always been really key and critical in that circumstance, and it's something that Australians and across, you know, my my uh, experience um, working in this area, but particularly at the Commonwealth level, I think Australians um, have built such a great reputation for genuine assistance and genuine partnership. Um, particularly in our region, uh, but elsewhere across the world as well. Um, and, you know, that's sort of been really evident in, in, in many of the, these, these significant examples um, where, you know, our neighbours um, in many circumstances uh, have faced a terrible challenge um, and needed support and assistance. Um, and Australia has been a country um, that they've looked to uh, in those circumstances, to to ask and provide that assistance for us personally, obviously, um, you know, where we've had many of our own citizens, um, family members impacted by those disasters, um, you know, there's a huge emphasis and importance, you know, for us to ensure that um, the investigation, you know, the identification, you know, the repatriation, you know, of those individuals. Uh, is done as quickly and and as effectively and as professionally and to the appropriate standard, um, you know, as it as it as it must be. Um, so I guess we have that that dual benefit of of um, of providing some of those answers and some of that support to our communities here, but also um, able to build on on that reputation and that genuine sense of partnership that Australia is well known for. Uh, particularly reaching out into our region and providing that support, um, you know, to our to our uh, to our partner countries and partner organisations in that context as well. So it's difficult work. There's no two ways about it. Um, every time um, those circumstances, you know, come about, um, uh, you know, it's 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 there's a whole order of um, you know of complexity and, and chaos. But I guess. For people like me and organisations like ours and, and, and those of, of other partner agencies, you know, in our community here and, and, and across the world, um, you know, that's the job that we're here to do is to try and um, go forth in those circumstances and bring a bit of order into those chaotic situations and start to um, handle those matters in a way that, um, you know, that supports what needs to be supported and particularly uh, in foremost in, in those those sorts of circumstances is, um, you know, is to uh, is to answer the questions that the next of kin and others have, um, and to provide, you know, their loved ones, um, you know, back to them as as quickly and uh, in the right way uh, as possible. Well, I think we'll leave it there. But Dr. Simon Walsh, thank you so much for your time on the National Security Podcast. That was a really wide ranging and and fascinating conversation about all matters police science, forensics and more. So uh, thank you again for joining us. It's been a pleasure, David. Thanks for the invitation.